In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this day, as we always do. And that is the way we should always pray, pray by asking the Holy Spirit to help us really open our mind and our heart so that our words are not just words, but true sentiments of the mind and the heart. So help us then to see what it is that we have been missing by not opening our minds and our hearts while we're praying and we just rattle words. Give us the strength and the courage then to truly examine our conscience and the purpose of our prayer, and not only the purpose, but the long-range objective. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this morning, and we just give you praise and thanksgiving at all things in Jesus' name. Sometimes I get a little carried away when I'm praying and I lose track of the subject or the, the purpose or the audience. Um, but that's okay. Uh, in When you are praying, the Spirit will actually lead you if you open your mind and heart to the Spirit. Okay? And that's what you should be doing. Um, so many people think by just rattling words that that's prayer. But remember the definition for, <clears throat> for those of you who are mature enough to have gone back to the old Baltimore Catechism. Uh, the definition of prayer is lifting the mind and the heart to God. Alright? Mind and the heart. Doesn't say anything about position or subject or location. Uh, or whether you're using any, anything like the rosary or not, it's lifting the mind and the heart to God. And if they are not connected, in other words, if you're uh, lifting a lot of words, but your mind is really uh, at the shopping mall or on the golf course or something like that, that's not prayer. You know, if your intentions are good, but you're distracted by doing other things, that's not prayer. It's got to be connected, mind and heart to God. Okay, just a, a little freebie, you know. That's beside the, that's beside our lesson today. The lesson today it really is what uh, I'd really like to get into because one of the main subjects um, of the Acts of the Apostles is what we're going to be talking about today. Let me set the scene, you might say. Paul has gone on now three um, three journeys. And he's developed these little house churches all over the what we call the Mideast today. All right? and slightly into a little bit of Greece, uh, which is part of Europe. In fact, I was asked by a question the other day, what continent is Israel on today? And so many of us, because we're so familiar with Jerusalem and Israel, that we kind of think it's part of the European community, but it isn't. Actually, it is part of Asia. All right, another little freebie. Okay. Um, Paul now has completed three journeys. He's established these churches 
all over. He's written by this time several of his letters, primarily First and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Corinthians. All right, and then Philippians comes about uh, this time or slightly later, and then you have the others: uh, Romans, uh, Timothy, Titus, etc. Okay. One of the problems that Paul is encountering, particularly as he continues to preach, is because he is, without choosing to do so, he's widening this wedge between the Jewish people and the Christian converts. Widening the wedge that will eventually separate Christianity from Judaism. Alright. And the way he is doing that is not only embracing the Gentile peoples, and Gentiles would mean anyone that was not a Jew, by embracing those people, bringing them into the Christian faith, and bringing them into the various synagogues. Remember, it was never Paul's intention to separate himself from Judaism. In fact, he brags about being a faithful Jew, even to, you know, doing the the Nazarite uh, idea of shaving the head and so forth. You know, I sort of joined him. it was never his intention to separate Judaism or from Christianity. It was that he tried to convert the Jews, but they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't obey. And finally, in his own mind, and through the revelations that he was privileged to receive, he developed this theology that it was no longer necessary to observe the laws of Judaism because they were fulfilled by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to remember. It was not that he was condemning the Jews. What he was trying to do was convert their thinking, their attitude from something that they had been observing for hundreds of years into something that was now brand new. And that's where he gets himself into a lot of trouble. And that is kind of where we are today in this particular point. Because he has come back to Jerusalem now with the idea of eventually going uh, to Rome and then all the way to Spain. Well, he never got to Spain and he never got to Rome on his terms, as we will see next week, uh, or actually today in the end of uh, chapter 24. Uh, but it's important to understand the problem that he is facing and why. Because he is correct. What I would imagine from understanding how Paul acted and how he carried out some of his ideas that he was not very, uh, let's say, discreet in trying to convince the Jewish people that 
they no longer had to observe the law, quote-unquote, that is the Torah. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have to obey the laws of God, such as the Ten Commandments. But you remember, the Jewish law, or 613 laws, were actually developed over a period of time, not just by Moses, but over a very long period of time, and many of them had virtually nothing to do with worshiping God or obeying the laws of God, particularly the dietary laws and some of these other laws that caused the Jewish people to um, be so exclusive that they would not carry out their primary mission of being the light to the Gentiles or the light to other nations. And we will see some of that next week uh, when we have our final meeting. Okay? So, let's get into chapter 21. Let's, uh, let's start at chapter 21, even though the, the assignment was starting at chapter 15. Um, chapter 21 is sort of the end of the third missionary uh, journey. When we had taken, and I remember, when we, that implies, not necessarily as proof, but implies that Luke, the writer of the book, is now part of Paul's entourage. When we had taken leave of them, we set sail, made straight run for coasts, and on the next day for Rhodes, and from there to Petra. Finding a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went on board and put out to sea. We caught sight of Cyprus, but passed by it on our left and sailed on toward Syria. Sounds like a travel log, Okay. I'm just skipping here. At the end of our uh, stay, we left and resumed our journey. All of them, women and children included, escorted us out of the city, and after kneeling on the beach to pray, we bade farewell to uh, one another. And then we boarded the ship, and they returned home. Remember, in those days, even though people did travel by ship, they didn't make reservations and get nice little rooms reserved, you know. They took their chances and waited in a port till they found a ship that was going in the direction that they wanted to go or even close by. And then they had to beg and scrounge for uh, fares to get a, uh, aboard because not all ships were equipped to handle uh, passengers. We continued the voyage and came from Tyre to Ptolemais. Uh, where we greeted the brothers and stayed a day with them. On the next day, we resumed the trip and came to Caesarea, where we went to the house of Philip the Evangelist. Now, Philip the Evangelist is one of the apostles. Okay. Later, it'll talk about Philip, one of the seven, 
which means one of the deacons. But this, in this case, means Philip, um, hey, wait, I, I'm, I'm wrong in that case. That's right. Uh, in this case, Philip was one of the seven, right? He's a deacon, not one of the apostles. That's right. Hmm? A deacon, not one of the apostles. Right. Says one, yeah, Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Remember back uh, in chapter three or four, they talked about uh, the necessary, the necessity to uh, appoint or consecrate seven men to help out with serving and so forth. He had four virgin daughters gifted with prophecy. We had been there several days when a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. He came up to us, took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands with it, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is the way the Jews will bind the owner of this belt in Jerusalem, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. But when he heard this, we and the local residents begged him not to go to Jerusalem, then Paul replied, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? I am prepared not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord. Jesus, since he would not be dissuaded, we let the matter rest, saying, The Lord's will be done. Does that remind you of something similar in the Gospels? Remember Peter saying to Jesus, do not go to Jerusalem, you know, God forbid that you should uh, suffer and die and so forth. And of course, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. The same kind of thing is happening here, okay, to Paul. Paul and James in Jerusalem, after these days, we made preparation for our journey. They went to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea came along to lead us to the house of Mason, a Cypriot, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to stay. And when we reached Jerusalem, the brothers welcomed us warmly. The next day, Paul accompanied us on a visit to James. Now, James is the brother of the evangelist John, and he was also the bishop of Jerusalem. He was the one that was uh, put to death by Herod later. <clears throat> he greeted them and proceeded to tell them in detail what God had accomplished among the Gentiles through his ministry. They praised God, and when they heard it, but said to him, Brother, you see how many thousands of believers there are among the Jews. Believers among the Jews now. And they are all zealous observers of the law. Because they have not separated themselves from Judaism. They have been informed that you are teaching all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to abandon Moses. And that you are telling them not to circumcise their children or to observe their customary practices. What is 
to be done. They will surely hear that you have arrived. So do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves with them and pay their expenses that they may have their heads shaved. In this way, everyone will know that there is nothing to to the reports <coughs> that have been given about you, but that you yourselves live in observance of the law. As for the Gentiles who have come to believe, we sent them our decision that they abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from the meat of strangled animals. Remember, that was uh, part of uh, the council, you might say, of Jerusalem back in chapter 15. So Paul took the men, and on the next day, after purifying himself, uh, together with them, entered the temple to give notice of the day when the purification would be completed and the offering made for each of them. Now here we have a little bit of a problem where he's saying that you don't have to observe all of these uh, laws, but here he is going through this purification ceremony. But you got to remember, what Paul is trying to get across is there are certain laws that have nothing to do with worshiping God. A purification ceremony is part of worshiping God. So in his mind, that's acceptable. Whereas the dietary laws, the washing of hands, you know, to extremes, and the washing of uh, pots and pans and all of that stuff, has nothing to do with worshiping God. Those were hygiene. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. Those were hygiene laws, and they were good, but you've got to separate the reason, the purpose, for why you are doing certain things. And that gets back to what I was saying earlier. The intention is far more important than the words you use in prayer. What is your purpose? And if the purpose doesn't fit of lifting your mind and your heart to God, then that's not prayer. So, Paul is trying to make that dis distinction here of separating some of these uh, so-called laws that really have nothing to do with worship. But he's not really discreet about it. Okay. Or sensitive. <clears throat> when the seven days were nearly completed, the Jews from the province of Asia noticed him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. And what is more, he has even brought Greeks woo, into the temple and defiled this sacred place. For they are previously, for they had previously seen uh, Trophimus and Ephesian in the city with him and supposed that Trophimus the Ephesian in the city and uh, with him and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was in turmoil with people rushing toward him. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the gates were closed. 
And while they were trying to kill him, a report reached the cohort commander that all Jerusalem was rioting. Let's go back here to the uh, commentary, beginning on the bottom of page 98. It says, the reference in verse 25 to police, to the policy regarding Gentile converts expressed in the apostolic decree of the Jerusalem, of the Council of Jerusalem, that's what I just said in in uh, chapter 15, strikes an odd note here. Paul, after all, played a major part in the meeting and indeed helped promulgate its policy regarding Gentile converts. But the notice serves to remind the reader that the present issue, Paul's attitude toward Jewish observance of the Torah, is something other than what is expected of Gentile Christians. Well, Gentile Christians would have no knowledge or understanding or reason for observing the law because that was never part of their culture. But the Jewish converts is a little different. And they're not being asked to abandon Moses and the holy parts of the Torah it's just these non-religious laws and observances. But that is not as easy as it sounds. Okay. Given Paul's own language, and I'm reading from the commentary now on 99, given Paul's own language about dying to the law, some commentators find Luke's portrayal here of Paul's compromise implausible. Yet it can be argued that Paul is acting in a way wholly consistent with the policy he articulates in 1 Corinthians 9, um, verse 19 to 21. Although I am free in regard to all, I have made myself a slave to all so as to win over as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win over Jews. <coughs> To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, to win over those under the law. So he's trying to be all things to all people. And as we all know, that doesn't work. Yeah. Sadly, in the end, the strategy fails, obviously. For in the events that follow, nothing indicates that Paul's Jerusalem Relief Fund, remember, he collected money from the Corinthians and the Thessalonians to carry down to Jerusalem to help out the converts there. Um, I have to go back up here. <coughs> Sadly, in the... <coughs> In the end, the strategy fails, for in the events that follow, nothing indicates that Paul's Jerusalem Relief Fund was accepted, and no one in the Jerusalem Christian community comes to his rescue in the confrontation that continues to unfold. The Jerusalem church, so robustly present in the early chapters of Acts, and now grown to many thousands, 
disappears from view during the final seven chapters. In other words, uh, those Jewish people who converted to Christianity have now seemed to faded away. Either they went back to Judaism totally or they left Jerusalem because, remember, the persecutions had begun. And those people who accepted Christianity, those Jews who accepted Christianity, were now being uh, expelled from the temple. And so the division begins. No. The question is, do we know where Peter is at this time? And the answer is no. Um, not quite. Uh, Peter and Paul were executed both in the same year in Rome. So this statement would include Peter in that case. Remember, Peter was a Jew who became a Christian. And it says most people are just almost nowhere to be found right now. But what he's talking about here is they're nowhere to be found in support of Paul. Yes, Joan? Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, well, that's been, oh, yeah, that's true. Oh, yes, that's been known for for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, in fact, I've seen that, yeah. All right, so you begin to, are you beginning to get the picture here now? All right. The, so the tension between the Christian Jews and the Gentile Jews versus the Jews who have rejected Christ have now really begun to boil up. Yes, yes. Yeah. <clears throat> Let's uh, go to verse 27 here on uh, page 99. When the seven days were nearly completed, the Jews from the province of Asia noticed him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. I read this already, but won't hurt again. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. And what is more, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this sacred place, where they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with them, and supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was in turmoil with people rushing together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed. And while they were trying to kill him, a report reached the cohort commander that all Jerusalem was rioting. He immediately took, now the cohort commander, that is the Romans, all right? He immediately took soldiers and centurions and charged down on them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
the cohort commander came forward, arrested him, ordered him to be secured with two chains. He tried to find out who he might be and what he had done. Some in the mob shouted one thing, others something else. So, since he was unable to ascertain the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be brought into the compound. And when he reached the steps, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob. For a crowd of people followed and shouted, Away with him! Doesn't that sound again like the crowd that yells, Crucify him! Just as Paul was about to be taken into the compound, he said to the cohort commander, May I have something, uh, may I say something to you? He replied, Do you speak Greek? Paul probably spoke three or four different languages. Okay. Uh, Aramaic and Hebrew, obviously, Greek and perhaps uh, some Latin, which wasn't quite common at this time period. So then you are not the Egyptian who started a revolt some time ago and led the 4,000 assassins into the desert. Paul answered, I am a Jew of Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. I request you to permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given his permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned with his hand to the people And when all was quiet, he addressed them in Hebrew. Of course now, he's using some logic and some tactics here. Okay. Now, pay attention to this kind of speech because it summarizes a lot of what Paul has been teaching throughout his Christian career. My brothers and fathers... Listen to what I am about to say to you in my defense. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became all the more quiet, and he continued. Now, Hebrew was a religious language. It was not the general language of the people at that time. The general language of the people in Israel at that time was Aramaic which was the common language. Hebrew was used more for religious observances. But most of the people, at least the uh, educated people, understood both. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel. I was educated strictly in our ancestral law, and was zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way, meaning the Christians, to death, binding both men and women and delivering them to prison. Even the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify on my behalf, for from them I even received letters to the brothers and set out for Damascus to bring back to Jerusalem in chains for punishment, those that, um, those there as well. On that journey, and of course now he's going to retell for the third time in this book uh, his conversion story. On that journey, as I drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from the sky suddenly shone 
around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I replied, who are you, sir? And he said to me, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. My companion saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who spoke to me. I asked, what shall I do, sir? The Lord answered me, get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told about everything appointed for you to do. And since I could see nothing because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by my companions and entered Damascus. A certain Ananias, a devout observer of the law, and highly spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and stood there and said, Saul, my brother, regain your sight. And at that very moment I regained my sight and saw him. And then he said, The God of our ancestors is designated you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear the sound of his voice. I want to stop for a moment. In the commentary, it talks about Paul has sort of embellished, you might say, this account. Because in previous accounts, the men saw the light but didn't hear the voice. In this one, they see the hear the voice and didn't see the light, or vice versa. Uh, and he's just changed it a little bit. But he's doing that more or less to fit the audience uh, to whom he's speaking. The essence is pretty much the same. Then he said, the God of our ancestors designated you to know his will and to see the righteous one, that is Jesus, and to hear the sound of his voice. For you will be his witness before all to what you have seen and heard. And now, why delay? Get up and have yourselves baptized and your sins washed away, calling upon his name. After I had returned to Jerusalem, remember, he didn't immediately get up and preach. He went to Arabia for a period of time and had those visions and uh, revelations. It says, after I had returned to Jerusalem, and while I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem at once because they will not accept your testimony about me. But I replied, Lord, they themselves know that from synagogue to synagogue, I used to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I myself stood by giving stood by giving my approval and keeping guard over the cloaks of his murderers. And then he said to me, Go, I shall send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him until he said this, but then they raised their voices and shouted, Take such a one take such a one as this away from the earth. It is not right that he should live. And as they were yelling and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the cohort commander ordered him to be brought into the compound, 
and gave instruction that he be interrogated under the lash to determine the reason why they were making such an outcry against him. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion on duty, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen? Hmm. Intrigue here. And has not been tried? When the centurion heard this, he went to the court commander and reported, saying, What are we going to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he answered. The commander replied, I acquired this citizenship. I acquired the corrupts. The commander replied, I acquired this citizenship for a large sum of money. Paul said, but I was born one. At once, those who were going to interrogate him backed away from him, and the commander became alarmed when he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had had him bound. Ooh. The next day, wishing to determine the truth about why he was being accused by the Jews, he freed him and ordered the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin to convene. And then and he, men, this cohort, brought Paul down and made him stand before them. Paul looked intently at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have conducted myself with a perfectly clear conscience before God to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered his attendants to strike his mouth. Remember, this is sort of almost a duplication of what Christ himself went through. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. Ooh, pretty strong language. Do you indeed sit in judgment upon me according to the law, and yet in violation of the law order me to be struck? Struck. The attendant said, Would you revile God's high priest? Paul answered, Brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not curse a ruler of your people. Again, a tactic. Okay. Paul was aware that some were Sadducees and some Pharisees. And so he called out before the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of Pharisees. I'm on trial for hope in the resurrection of the dead. Ooh, another tactic. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the group became divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, while the Pharisees acknowledge all three. A great uproar occurred and some scribes belonging to the Pharisee party stood up and sharply sharply argued, We find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or angel has spoken to him. The dispute was so serious 
that the commander, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, ordered his troops to go down and rescue him from their midst and take him into the compound. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for just as you have borne witness to my cause in Jerusalem, you must also bear witness in Rome. I must stop here and tell you my favorite little story. You know, as it says here, For the Sadducees say that there is no no resurrection. You know about that? Well, that's because they believe in there's no life after death. And that is why they are sad, you see. Good for a little bit of laugh once in a while. So you can see now what's what's beginning to happen here. The whole idea of Paul is trying to reason with these people using you know some clever uh, tactics, but they're not buying it. And that is because you have to kind of understand, in all of the countries where he established these little church houses, these people were Hellenistic type of people. In other words, more open in their mind and their heart to at least examining new ideas and new concepts. So they weren't so biased or so strongly uh, entrenched in Judaism. They were more open and willing to at least listen so that when the Spirit would work through them and they would begin to understand and put some reasonableness into what Paul was saying. But the people in Jerusalem were so hard bent to stick to to Judaism and the law uh, that they could not accept all of these changes. And then, of course, when Paul came back to Jerusalem, he was now the enemy, when at one point in time he was a great hero. Let's go on here. Paul has this vision now from Christ saying... uh, Take courage, for just as you have borne witness to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness in Rome. This is the first uh, indication now of what is about to happen uh, to Paul. When day came, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who formed this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have bound ourselves by a solemn oath to taste nothing until we have killed Paul. Remember now, they, they, the Jewish people, were not permitted by Roman law 
to kill anybody. And that is why they sort of had to manipulate and get the Romans to do it. Uh, and that's, of course, why at the time of Christ, the temple rulers uh, developed this sort of mock riot that was about to happen uh, facing Jesus and got the Romans to come in to start putting it down. And yet what happened, of course, was the Romans took over and the Jewish people got their way. You have the same thing happening here now. It's sort of a, a manipulation, but the responsibility really is back on the Jews. Okay. <clears throat> you, together with the Sanhedrin, must now make an official request to the commander to have him bring, in, bring him down to you, as though you meant to investigate his case more thoroughly. See, this is a conspiracy now of the Jews manipulating the Romans. We, on our part, are prepared to kill him before he arrives. The son of Paul's sister, however, heard about the ambush. This is the first time we've heard of any relative of Paul's, okay? Paul's sister. Whoever heard about the ambush so went and entered the compound and reported it to Paul. Paul then called one of the centurions and requested, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to report to him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and explained. The prisoner called Paul and asked that I bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. The commander took him by the hand, drew him aside and asked him privately, What is it you have to report to me? He replied, the Jews have conspired to ask you to bring Paul down to the Sanhedrin tomorrow, as though they meant to inquire about him more thoroughly. But do not believe them. More than 40 of them are lying in wait for him. They have bound themselves by oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are now ready and only wait for your consent. As the commander dismissed the young man, he directed him, Tell no one that you gave me this information. And then he summoned two of the centurions and said, Get two hundred soldiers ready to go to Caesarea by nine o'clock tonight, along with seventy horsemen and two hundred auxiliaries. Provide mounts for Paul to ride and give him safe conduct to Felix the governor. Now, Felix was the governor who took over after Pilate was recalled to Rome. And then he wrote a letter with his, this content. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man, seized by the Jews and about to be murdered by them, I rescued after intervening with my troops when I learned that he was a Roman citizen. I wanted to learn the reason for their accusations against him, so I brought him down to their, their Sanhedrin. I discovered that he was accused in matters of controversial questions of their law and not of any charge deserving death or imprisonment. 
So it was brought to my attention that there would be a plot against the man. And sending him to you at once and have also noticed his accusers to state their case against him before you. So the soldiers, according to their orders, took Paul and escorted him by night to um, Antipatris. The next day they returned to the compound, leaving the horsemen to complete the journey with him. When they arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul to him. When he had read it and asked to what province he belonged, they learned that he was from Cilicia. He said, I shall hear your case when your accusers arrive. And then he ordered that he be held in custody in Herod's Praetorium. Now, don't confuse the Sanhedrin with the Sadducees. All right? The Sanhedrin is like our Congress made up of different political parties. The Sadducees were one of those parties. So it's the Sadducees and there were five other uh, parties within the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling body of, of uh, Jews at the time. Okay. All of that fell apart in uh, 70 A.D. with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. Five days later, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and an advocate, a certain Tertullus, and they presented formal charges against Paul to the governor. When he was called, Tertullus went, began to accuse him, saying, since we have attained much peace through you and reforms have been accomplished in this nation through your provident care, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all gratitude. But in order not to detain you further, I ask you to give us a brief hearing with your customary graciousness. We found this man to be a pest. He creates dissension among Jews all over the world, and it is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazareans. He even tried to desecrate our temple, but we arrested him. And if you examine him, you will be able to learn from him for yourself about everything of which we are accusing him. The Jews also joined in the attack and asserted that these things were so. Then the governor motioned to him to speak, and Paul replied, I know that you have been a judge over this nation for many years, and so I am pleased to make my defense before you. As you can verify, not more than twelve days have passed since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor anywhere in the city did they find me arguing with anyone or instigating a riot among the people. Paul is using some clever tactics again. Nor can they prove to you the accusations they are now making against me. But this I do admit to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of my ancestors, and I believe everything that is in accordance 
with the law and written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God as they themselves have. And there will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Because of this, I always strive to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After many years, I came to bring alms for my nation and offerings. While I was so engaged, they found me, after my purification in the temple, without a crowd or disturbance. But some Jews for the province of Asia, who should be here before you to make whatever accusations they might have against me, or let these men themselves state what crime they discovered when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was my one outcry as I stood among them, that I am on trial before you today for the resurrection of the dead. Then Felix, who was accurately informed about the way, postponed the trial, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I shall decide your case. He gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that he should not prevent any of the friends from caring for his needs. Amen. Amen. And this is a time period now where he has been imprisoned, but sort of given, you might say, a house arrest uh, in Jezreel when he writes many of his letters. He does the same in Rome when he eventually gets there, which we will talk about next week. All right. Um, Susan? Ananias. Yes. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah, they were elected for life. Yeah. Uh, Ananias. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's sort of a mix-up of words or pronunciations. Yeah. Um, You had two, the father-in-law and the son-in-law. Father-in-law and the son-in-law. And Caiaphas, yeah, and Ananias, yeah. Okay. All right, let's stop here for... Uh, a little bit because I want to get into I want to get into the uh, subject of church as we've talked about in the past we will cover the rest of this next week in our last class next week being the last meeting in addition to the readings from chapter 24, verse 25, through the end of uh, the book. I also want to talk about um, the meaning of church. Yes, but I would like to also talk about what you might want to study and discuss in our next session, which will not be until September. I'm sorry?
Um, as you know, we only do two classes a year, uh, one in the sort of winter months or spring months, but once it becomes spring, people do not want to come in and study. So uh, we don't do anything really again until September, okay. which will run somewhere around the middle of September up to uh, the week before Thanksgiving, okay. another 10-week period. So think about what you would like to uh, discuss and we'll talk more about it next week. The other subject that I want to talk about is a continuation of our discussion on church. Right now, of course, the newspapers uh, are full of uh, discussions on the uh, papal conclave going on in Rome, uh, which began officially yesterday. Uh, there was no uh, white puffy smoke last night, which means that they are voting again today. They vote four times per day and then call it a day. Uh, tough work if you can get it. But that's important. The thing is, how is it important to us? What does it really mean to us? And I think one of the things that we can or should look at <clears throat> is you hear so many people say, well, I hope we get a more modern pope. Well, exactly what is meant by a more modern pope? Remember, as I've said over and over, and will continue to say over and over, the church is an extension of Christ himself. Christ, that is, God, the Son of God, God himself. And as it says in the book of Hebrews, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There are certain things that God cannot and will not change. Uh, and those things are the gift of life in a very broad sense. The gift of life is God alone to give and God alone to take. No one else has that right. With one exception. When you are in extreme danger of death from another person, you have the right to defend yourself. Because your life is important to you. Your life is the most important life that you have control over. And therefore, like any sin, you can avoid it by any means. But that is the only exception. All right. So, the, having a new pope is not going to change the church's teaching on abortion or on capital punishment or anything affecting life and giving of life or taking of life. There are so many other subjects. So we have to, in our own mind, really try to understand not so much what is the church thinking, but what is God thinking through the church. Because the church is an extension of God. Okay. Uh, 
No. The church can change things that the church has set up. Church rules can be changed by church rules or, or the church itself. But the rules that God has set up, stemming right back to the time of Moses and the Ten Commandments, God cannot and will not change. God does not change. <coughs> Pardon me. So, our mind and our heart should be centered on the church as an extension of God, not on some clumsy bunch of old men in Rome dictating silly laws, as so many people look upon it. Um, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that subject. Yes, sir. Uh, frankly, I've never heard of the chair of Moses. Now, there's the chair of St. Peter, which is the cent... Well, in, in, a, in a way, as the guiding light appointed by God himself, Moses was appointed as the guiding light uh, human right, that is, of the Jewish people. And yes, in some ways, you might say Peter was the successor in that regard. Uh, but mm, that's a little stretch. Yeah, I found that a little stretch because I thought, okay, Moses and Joshua, but then after that, who? Well, that's right. Uh, the authority was handed down from Moses uh, to Joshua to Caleb and the judges and then from the judges to the kings and from the kings to the prophets. Okay. But not exactly with the same meaning. Peter was appointed by Christ himself, by God himself in the form of Christ as the head of the visible church on earth. And the chair of St. Peter was always recognized as the seat of authority. Now, the Jewish people had a similar seat called the mercy seat, which was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. If you go back to the book of Exodus you will see that how the Ark of the Covenant was seen, was developed and built in such a way that there was a seat on top of that which was intended to be the seat of God himself, the presence of God himself. And the Ark of the Covenant represented 
to the Jewish people <coughs> from the time of Moses to the Babylonian captivity as the presence of God within them. And it was housed in first in the temple uh, tents, temple tents, and then when <coughs> excuse me, Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, it was then housed in the Holy of Holies. And it remained there for almost 500 years until the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians and the Ark of the Covenant was uh, destroyed. But the idea remained that the law became the center of authority for the Jewish people. And as we just read here, Paul is changing that by saying that the laws of Judaism no longer applied because they were fulfilled by Christ himself. In fact, if we go to chapter 11 of the book of Romans, we have a little bit of time. Let me read this because it kind of summarizes, <coughs> pardon me, from Paul's point of view, the idea of the Torah no longer being the true center of authority, but rather the teachings of Christ. This is Romans chapter 11, verse 11. It says, I further ask, does their stumbling, meaning the Jews, mean that they are forever fallen? Not at all. Rather, by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to stir Israel to envy. In other words, because the Jews rejected Christ, salvation is now being given or offered to uh, the Gentiles or all other non-Jewish people in a way to at least get the Jewish people to wake up. But if their transgression and their uh, diminishing... If their transgression and their diminishing have meant riches for the Gentile word, how much more their full number? I say this now to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles. I glory in my ministry, trying to rouse my fellow Jews to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection has meant reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean? Let's go over that again. For if their rejection has meant reconciliation for the world, what will their acceptance mean? It means that if by their rejection of the Jews of Christ and his teachings, God has now turned and opened the door of uh, the promise land and, and the chosen people to all those who accept Christ, what does that mean now to the Jewish people? If they continue to reject Christ, they reject salvation. 
But if they accept Christ, then they are entitled to salvation just as well. If some of the branches were cut off, and you, a branch of the wild olive tree, have been grafted in among the others and have come to share in the rich root of the olive, do not boast against the branches. In other words, just because now God has opened salvation to all non-Jewish people, don't take it for granted. If you do boast, remember that you do not support the root. The root supports you. You say, branches were cut off that I might be grafted in. Well and good. They were cut off because of unbelief. And you are there because of faith. Do not be haughty on that account, but fearful. If God did not separate the natural branches, he will certainly not spare you. Consider the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who fell. Kindness towards you. Provided you remain in his kindness. If you do not, you will be cut off. And if the Jews do not remain in their belief, they will be grafted back on. Just as I've said, if they reject and continue to reject Christ and his teachings, they will reject salvation. But if they open their mind and accept him, they will be accepted back as part of the chosen people. And this goes on. It says, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, lest you be conceited. Blindness has come upon part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles enter in. And then all Israel will be saved. That is, if all the Jews enter. As scripture says, out of Zion will come the deliverer who shall remove all impiety from Jacob. And this is the covenant I will make with them when I take away their sins. In respect to the gospel, the Jews are enemies of God for your sake. In respect to the election, they are beloved by him because of the patriarchs. God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Sometimes Paul can get a little wordy and not easy to understand. But most of our early theology has come right from that particular book, the book of Romans, supplemented by Galatians and uh, Corinthians. Uh, If you go right on from Romans to chapter 13 in Corinthians, the whole chapter of love, where it ends by saying, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now that doesn't mean that the law is totally done away with. The basis for the Jewish law was the Ten Commandments. And that is still in vogue. That is still very much worthwhile because those were laws given to mankind by God himself and cannot and will not be changed. But then Moses took them and Moses' followers all the way down the line took those and exploded them into 
various degrees according to man's thinking, not God's thinking. And that's where we went wrong. Um, the whole idea now, getting back to the idea of church, we can modernize many things and perhaps should modernize many things, such as the language, the language uh, that we used for nearly a thousand years from the 5th century to the 15th century was strictly uh, Latin beginning in the 16th century with the uh, development of the uh, printing press, the Bible began to be translated for the people in the local languages. Uh, but the official language was still Latin all the way up into the Second Vatican Council when it was then changed to the vernacular for the common people's use. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes. Well, to to the people at that time, he was clear. Yes. He's speaking, you know, to people in their own language <clears throat> and in the language that was customary at that time. This is a direct translation. And those things can change as well. Um, but the essence of what he's saying is that if the Jews continue to reject Christ, they reject salvation. But the door is always open for them to come over. Now, getting back to our idea of church. Again, as I've said before, if somebody were to ask you, why are you a Catholic? Why are you a Christian? I would really like to hear next week, voluntarily, some of your answers as to what you would say to somebody if they asked you. Because to say nothing or say, oh, I don't know, um, doesn't speak well for you or for the church. And so we have to really fix in our mind something that is both meaningful to us and is reflected in by is reflected uh, by our speech and our actions. Does that sound like too much of a project? Um, and I will be glad to lead off with the way I feel about it. All right. Now you don't have to talk about priests or the bishops or even the Pope talk about the essence of what church is and that is what we're really getting at because if you say well I didn't like Father so and so or I don't think Bishop so and so did this or that correctly you know or the Pope could have been a little more lenient on this that is not church those are people <coughs> And unfortunately, as I said many times and will continue to say, the church is divine. It gave, it was given to us by God. And that's where he made the big mistake. You know. He gave it to us. Yeah.
He gave it to mankind to run, see? And it's gone downhill ever since. But not the essence, okay? Not the essence of what church is or supposed to be. And that is what we're really trying to get at. Any questions? Any other questions? Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. We have our faith, our love, and the freedom to express both. Help us then to cherish the gifts that you have given us through our country, our church, and the love we have for each other. Help us then during this coming Easter season to really see the beauty of the church and what your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, has given us the freedom to worship as we do. So we ask your blessing in our efforts, not only today or this week or this year, but always to honor you through obedience and fidelity. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.